All right, please take your Bible this evening and turn to Luke 8. Luke 8, ambitiously attempting to get through 21 verses this evening. Title of the sermon, How You Hear. Throughout the book of Luke, we have come face to face on several occasions with the theme of hearing. We talked just a couple of weeks ago about the legacy of unbelief and considered just how different knowing something is from actually hearing something. The, the difference between knowing it in your head and believing it in your heart. And at this point in Jesus' ministry, things began to change. He's teaching the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. But instead of being forthright and direct in his teachings, as he had been in Luke 6, as he directly gave his expectations, telling them what is right, telling them what is wrong, and expecting them to receive it, he begins in Luke 8, and we see this transition in Matthew 13 as well, to use parables extensively. This change we will find in this evening's passage is very, very significant. When Jesus starts using parables, his ministry has changed focus. By and large, the multitudes have now rejected Jesus' message. He has been effectively rejected as Messiah. And so now he transitions his teachings away from the multitudes directly and focuses on those who have received who were willing to hear on his disciples. And the parables mark this transition. The reason why Jesus started using parables was to separate the sheep and the goats, was to give the teaching to those who would hear, but to those who would not hear, really to make it inaccessible to them, to withhold it from them. Because they, not, not because Jesus doesn't want them to be saved, but because they have already chosen, by and large, to reject his ministry. And one of the primary ways he chose to transition this was through parables. The parables would resonate in the ears of those who would hear, who had received Jesus's words, but would fall to the ground nearly unheard by those who had rejected his ministry. And it is appropriate then that the first of Jesus's parables, the first one that we find recorded in the gospels is a parable about hearing itself. And it is important to understand that these parables were not directed towards unbelievers. By their very nature, they are directed toward those who do believe to teach them the deeper things of Christ. At this point, we are getting beyond just the gospel of the kingdom as it relates to believing, and it's towards now learning what Jesus expects of us in a deeper way. And we'll jump into this parable in just a few minutes. But before we do, I'd like us to remind ourselves, we've taught this before, but I'd like us to remember how it is that we ought to interpret parables. In order to interpret anything correctly, we need to have a proper understanding of the intent of the communication. I'm sure many of you have been in a situation, uh, perhaps on social media, perhaps uh, in person, when 
uh, maybe as, as we think of that social media example or where a new article begins to make its rounds around the internet and people are angry, causing no end of frustration, only to be told that the article in question was intended to be satirical. So an article goes around and it's talking about something and it makes people really angry and then people in the comments say, hey, you know that this is a satire article, right? You know that this was just a joke. When you read an article from the perspective of satire, all of a sudden the things that would normally make you angry are actually kind of funny because it's making light of serious events. Similarly, when you read a poet, If you were to read William Wordsworth or Samuel Coleridge, you must approach these authors as poets, right? You have to approach their writings in a different way. You have to understand their words in a different light. In poetry, we have what's called poetic license, where imagery and comparison and illusion are much more valid and must be interpreted very differently. You can't interpret a poet the same way you interpret a historian. You can't interpret a poet the same way you would even interpret a nonfiction writer. You can't do that. Because poetry uses illusion and comparison. It takes license with ideas in order to express things in a way that that is perhaps more beautiful or perhaps more um, impacting than simply giving the facts. So we need to interpret a writing within the context of its intent. And this is very important with parables. When we approach a parable to interpret its meaning properly, we have to understand the purpose of a parable. And that's where we're going to begin this evening. When it comes to interpreting parables, there are two essential considerations that one must bear in mind. First... The parable consists of two distinct parts. They're interrelated, but they're distinct. There is a fictional picture, and then there's a reality of comparison. There's a story and a comparison, a fictional picture and a reality. We, we need to understand that it's broken into these two parts. The fictional part, and then the reality part. Second, we need to understand that parables are intended to preach One primary truth. There's one lesson being taught. And everything in the fictional part of the picture and everything in the reality part of the lesson is intended to drive home one lesson. Only one. Note that this is very different from what we would call an allegory. Parables and allegories are two very different things, but oftentimes Christians throughout the centuries have muddied them. Like a parable, an allegory is a fictional story that's intended to teach real truths. Uh, The most popular allegory or famous allegory in the world is Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim's Progress is written as an allegory. And as an allegory, every element of the fictional story is intended to represent something real. It's intended to reflect some element of reality. So everything in the fictional allegory can be connected to something in reality. Parables are not this way. 
In a parable, there's one main point being emphasized, one overriding lesson. And the elements of the fictional parable are intended simply to prepare the heart, to relate the heart to that one truth. There are elements of the fiction, excuse me, here I am hitting buttons. There's elements of the fictional story that don't matter, that do not correlate to the reality. The reality is one lesson. Now, those elements of the fictional story may represent things. But if they do represent things, all of those representations are intended simply to point to the final lesson. Every other element of the parable exists only to teach that lesson. Now, throughout much of church history, as I mentioned, this has been muddied. Many Christians have taken parables and interpreted them allegorically. They have taken every element of the parable and they feel compelled to make every element of the parable represent something spiritually, represent some spiritual lesson. And you can do that, and some of those might even be valid comparisons. But in doing so, you might actually miss the point of the parable. One of the most egregious examples of this is the parable of the prodigal son. We call it the parable of the prodigal son, but did you know that the parable is actually not about the prodigal son? The lesson that Jesus... You can learn some lessons from the prodigal son, but the lesson that Jesus is teaching there, he's talking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and he's trying to teach them about the son that was not prodigal. The response of that son to the father when the father received the prodigal back. You don't hear that many times. We'll talk about that when we get to the parable of the prodigal son. So that'll kind of give you a little bit of a taste. But that's probably the most misinterpreted parable because people use it allegorically. The father represents something. The son represents something. The other son represents something. The, 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 the pit that he's sitting in when he's trying to eat from the pigs, it, everything represents something. And we're just going to teach what it represents. Well, that's fine. And you're right. The father does represent God. And, and the prodigal son does represent certain people group. And the other son represents a certain people group. But what matters the most is the lesson. And the lesson was about the response of the son who did not go prodigal. So that's the idea here. I hope that kind of gives you an idea of what I'm trying to say. The point, however, is that we do a disservice to parables if we press the points of the story itself and attempt to draw out more from them than what is there. The story part of the parable, if I may put it this way, doesn't matter. It's inconsequential, except to the degree that it expresses the intended lesson. It is meant to take a spiritual and an unrelatable topic, something that's hard to relate to, a spiritual truth that is kind of hard to understand, and bring something relatable to bear. Teach something relatable so that we can understand the unrelatable topic. To make an unrelatable topic relatable to the hearer by using familiar terms that express the lesson. And so what this means is this. When a part of the fiction, the fiction part of the parable, when it clearly represents something, well, don't reject that. But when a part of that fictional part doesn't seem to have a really clear one-to-one representation, we should assume, unless proven otherwise, that it simply exists to help the story, to help 
fill the story, to help give us a whole coherent, relatable story so as to better express the intended lesson. So to summarize, parables are intended to express a single basic point. We talked about that. Two, the elements of the parable may or may not represent anything. And then this last point, the context of the parable will help you understand its primary lesson. Understand the author's purpose, understand the author's intent, and understand the surrounding circumstances. The author's purpose and intent, the circumstances surrounding the parable when it is given, are very important to its meaning. The parable we find today, this parable of the sowing of the seeds, it's found in the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew 13, Mark 4, and Luke 8. These three men, when they wrote this parable down, had very different reasons for writing their Gospels, didn't they? Matthew wrote to a Jewish audience to prove that Jesus was Messiah. Mark wrote to a Gentile audience in order to prove Jesus' sacrifice, his suffering, and his servitude. Luke wrote to a Greek man in order to give him the facts of Jesus in chronological order and to express Jesus' ultimate authority over all things. Now, these are three very different purposes. And this means that when each author was deciding what they were going to put into their gospel, they chose to put this parable into their gospel for a reason. Now, the lesson of each parable is going to be the same. But the reason for which they put it in might have been very different. The circumstances that the text gives as to why the parable was given matters also. Who was Jesus speaking to? What had just happened that inspired Jesus to teach this parable? The answer to these questions will help us understand the primary lesson. And when you're reading a parable, that is what you're looking for. Look for the lesson. The rest of the stuff, that can be beneficial. That can be helpful to you. But if you take anything away from the parable, take away the lesson that Jesus is trying to teach. The one lesson. Find it, identify it, and take that with you. So now that we've had this brief reminder, this crash course on how to interpret parables, let's dig into the one that we find this evening. And actually, we're going to start with a little bit of, of narrative before we dig into the parable. Verses 1 through 3 of chapter 8 in Luke tell us this. And it came to pass afterward that he went throughout every city and village, preaching and showing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. And certain women, which had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom went seven devils, and Joanna, the wife of Chudza, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others which, were, which ministered unto him of their substance. So the chapter begins with Jesus. Remember, he has just left the house of Simon the Pharisee. The woman from the city, the harlot, has anointed his feet with oil, and now he is going through every city and village preaching the kingdom of God. The text tells us that the 12 were with him, specifically that the 12 were with him. And we're also introduced here to what Luke calls certain women who ministered unto him of their substance. It is perhaps not surprising to us that women would be particularly drawn to the message of Jesus in the Jewish culture because in his teachings on the kingdom of heaven, women were fellow heirs with men. While 
in this world, we understand God's design that women are to be in the role of submission to men in the context of home, society, and the church. Yet, from a spiritual perspective, if, if you are in Christ, these barriers and distinctions completely melt away. Men have no greater spiritual advantage, and born-again women are no less children of God than anyone else. Paul says it this way in Galatians chapter 3, verses 27 and 28. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither bond nor free. There's neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ. Now certainly in the church, men are, are to be the teachers. In the home, fathers are to be the leaders. In society, men are to be those in leadership. This is what the Bible teaches. We're not saying that's not the case. But when God looks at us in Christ, all of those distinctions fall away. We are one in Christ. So it is that we're introduced to three women here. The first, Mary called Magdalene, a woman who had been demon-possessed. Magdalene is simply where she was from. She was from Magdala. She was the woman of, she was a Magdalene. So it was the location from which she was derived, she had uh, uh, come from, she derived. Um, she had been possessed by many demons and had many physical infirmities. Mark 16 verse 9 tells us that she had been healed of seven devils. Now that is perhaps a literal number. It might have been that there were actually specifically seven demons. But we know from scripture that the biblical number seven is very significant, right? Anytime you see the number seven, you should be thinking in terms of completion or fulfillment uh, of perfection. It's the number of perfection. When Peter asked Jesus, Jesus, how many times should I forgive my brother in a day till seven times? What he was saying there is a perfect number of times, a complete number of times every time. And of course, Jesus answered, no, 70 times seven. He was heightening the idea there. But the, the concept of using the number seven is a number of completion, the number of fulfillment. Uh, Mark might simply mean that every aspect of her body had been touched by these demonic interferences, that there was no element of her that, that had not been influenced by her. We don't know if it's literal or if it's figurative here. But Mary had these demons cast out of her by Christ and would follow Jesus all the way to his resurrection. She would watch her Savior die, according to Matthew 27. But she was also one of the women on the, the first day of the week who would go to the tomb, who would see the stone rolled away. And he, she is the woman who, when Jesus is standing there, says, Mary... And she recognizes him. That's found in Matthew 28. Joanna, the wife of Chadza, would also follow Jesus all the way to his resurrection. We will read of her again in Luke 24. She is said to be the wife of Herod's steward. And so she has very close ties to their Roman leaders. She was likely a woman of great wealth and means. And so as the Bible says that these women ministered to Jesus of their substance, literally, these women were a great part of Jesus' ability to function in ministry. They sustained him. They took care of him. They helped him along the way. And Hudza, um, Joanna was probably a big part of that because Hudza would have been a man of, of probably means. Uh, it has been suggested by some commentators, though certainly not proven, that and and we can't prove it. That Hudza was the nobleman of Capernaum whose dying son was healed 
in John 4, verse 46. That's a possibility that he was that nobleman. We don't really know, but some have suggested that. And the third woman mentioned here is Susanna. We know nothing else of her from the scriptures. There's nothing else written of her. Her name does not come up again. Uh, these three women, however, it is mentioned among many others. Notice that, that it's among many others ministered unto Jesus of their substance. They were essential to the provision and care of Jesus and his disciples while they ministered and traveled around. And indeed, we find throughout history that it has often been the compassion and the generosity of the fairer sex that has blessed ministers and ministries, keeping them sustained through their kindness and through their selfless devotion to the work of the Lord. We see that in Jesus' ministry as well. Continuing in verses 4 through 8. And when much people, and this is the parable proper, this is the fictional part. When much people were gathered together and were come to him, that would be Jesus, out of every city, he spake by a parable. A sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and it was trodden down. And the fowls of the air devoured it, and some fell upon a rock. And as soon as it was sprung up, it withered away, because it lacked moisture." And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up with it and choked it. And others fell on good ground and sprang up and bare fruit an hundredfold. And when he had said these things, he cried, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. So this first portion of the parable is that fictional picture that we were talking about. And we find in this fictional picture a sower, and he's sowing seed, and he sows into four types of soil. The wayside, rocky soil, thorny soil, and good ground. Now, we can talk about all of the elements, but, but let's stay focused here. The seeds are sown on these four types of soil. In the first soil, the wayside in the road Uh, where the ground is packed hard by feet as they travel, the seed could not even get in. This is like that area in your yard where you walk around from front to back and so there's a trail there, right? And there's no grass that can grow there because everything's dead because feet are trotting on it all the time and the soil has been so deeply compacted that unless you till it up, nothing's ever going to grow there again. That's the idea here. So as the seed is being cast... It's landing on that wayside soil and the seeds cannot get in. And instead, they're trodden underfoot and eventually birds come and eat those seeds and there's nothing there. Nothing grows. The second soil is rocky ground. The seeds are able to penetrate this ground. It's rocky, but the seeds can penetrate and spring up. But because it's rocky, the roots stay shallow. They're not able to get deep. They're not able to be strong. So they can't get enough moisture And they die because they don't have enough moisture. When the sun hits them, they don't have the root system to maintain themselves and they die. In the third soil, the seeds get in and they are able to penetrate and they spring up and their roots are fine. But with it springs up thorns. This is thorny ground. And these thorns, if you've ever seen this in a yard, my yard was beginning to be afflicted by this last year. The weeds began, can choke out Grass and can choke out trees and can choke out bushes that the weeds grow so thick that they're taking the water and they are taking the sustenance and they are choking out the, the plants. And that's what happens to this third type of soil. The, the thorns choke out the plants and the plants die. The fourth soil, 
The seed is able to penetrate and spring up. There's no thorns. The roots are good. The soil is good. And because the soil is good, the, word, the, the, the seed can grow. It can become strong. The plant can become strong. And it bears great fruit. In Luke, we find the, the, simply the, the one type of, of bearing fruit a hundredfold. Now, this lesson is very relatable, right? I've already related it to you through myself. I, I own a yard. And so this lesson is relatable. If you've ever worked on a flower bed, if you've ever weeded a garden, if you've ever taken care of a yard, you can relate to this. That's why Jesus gave it, because it is relatable. The circumstance makes complete sense, and all of us can relate to it. That's the point of the fictional part of the parable, something you can relate to personally. Trampled yard, grass dies. Rocky yard, grass dies. Weed-infested yard, grass dies. You take care of the weeds, you get out the rocks, you till up the soil, grass lives. That's how it works. Now that's the fictional portion of the parable. Now before Jesus explains it, we have an essential interaction between Jesus and his disciples, which explains why He is speaking in parables. The disciples hear this parable and they're like, okay, this is interesting. We have no idea what Jesus just said. (laughs) We have no idea what it means. I can relate to it. Is he giving gardening advice now? What's going on here? Why is Jesus telling us this? And we read this in verses 9 and 10. And his disciples asked him saying, what might this parable be? And he said, this is Jesus speaking, unto you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to others in parables that seeing they might not see and hearing they might not understand. It's important to understand that Jesus didn't give the meaning of the parable to everyone. He told the parable to everyone and he gave the meaning to those who would listen, to those who would hear, to his disciples alone. The fictional picture was given to the multitudes. The meaning was only given to his disciples. And Jesus explains his reasoning behind this, saying that the disciples have received the word of God, so it is given to them to know the mysteries of the kingdom. But to those who have rejected the simple truths of the word of God, to them it is not given to know the mysteries of the kingdom. He's using parables as a small example of what will become the very essence of God's dealing with the world in this age. As we spoke of this just two weeks ago, considering the legacy of unbelief, we called it. What Jesus is illustrating here is that while his truths are freely available to everyone, they will only be understood by those who are willing to receive them by faith. Now, we know of that in this sense, right? In, in, in the sense that when you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, the scales fell off your eyes. You began to understand the truths of God's Word. Even as a believer, there may have been some truths that for years you just rejected. You weren't willing to listen to. And when you finally were willing to humble yourself before the Lord, it's like the Scriptures began to open up to you, right? You began to understand things in a new way. The, the Scriptures came alive because you finally relented. You were finally listening. You finally had ears to hear. That idea in the spiritual realm is what Jesus is doing in the physical realm. He is pinpointing those that have ears to hear and he's telling everybody the, the, the parable and then he's allowing only those who hear to believe it. This is actually what the ministry of the Holy Spirit is about. 
Everyone can, anyone can come into this church and sit into these seats. But the only people that are going to truly receive are those who are willing to listen to the Spirit of God. Who are receptive to the Spirit of God. Whether that's the conviction unto salvation or whether that's in their own heart they have accepted Jesus Christ and now the Holy Spirit is teaching them. They're the only ones that are actually going to receive. Everyone else, they can come, they can sit, they can listen, they can leave and not understand a thing, truly. They can understand the, the, the words that I'm saying, but not the spiritual implications of them. So what the Holy Spirit will be to us after Pentecost, Jesus is actually being to them right now. He's giving the parable to the multitude and then he's interpreting it for those who were willing to receive him. Once Jesus leaves, that ministry will be transferred to the indwelling Holy Spirit. Now, we know this is the case. Uh, we, we understand this. This is what Paul teaches us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. He says, The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. In one ear, out the other. And this is not just talking about the unbeliever. This is talking about any man who's living in carnality. Any man who's living in carnality, who's living in his natural self, will fail to understand the deeper things of the Spirit of God. They will, they will pass by him because he's not allowing the Spirit of God to minister to him. They can hear, but they cannot understand because they do not have the discernment through the Spirit of God. Now, if we might carry this idea into what Jesus is saying in Luke 8, only those who have received by faith the spiritual realities of Christ's ministry are given the privilege and insight to understand the spiritual truths that Jesus is teaching. The rest will hear, they might even understand the concept, but they have not accepted the spiritual validity of it, and so they do not learn its deeper truths. In order to help his disciples understand this, he tells them that this concept conforms to the natural judgment presented by God in Isaiah chapter 6. That in seeing they might not see, and in hearing they might not hear. In Isaiah 6, 9, and 10 we read this. And he said, this is God speaking to Isaiah, Go tell the people, hear ye indeed, but understand not. And see ye indeed, but perceive not? Make the heart of this people fat, and make their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and convert and be healed. God describes a people in Isaiah chapter 6 who heard, but did not understand. This is the nation of Israel. They saw, but they did not perceive. And in verse 10, God tells Isaiah to continue to preach to them. But he warns them that as he continues to preach to them, that rather than finally hearing, this message will actually cause them to harden their hearts more. They'll hear the message, but they won't perceive it. They'll see with their eyes, but not perceive. They'll hear with their ears, but not understand. They'll... they'll Grasp the concept but not understand the purpose. And it will actually confirm them in their rebellion. Because they have rejected the word of the Lord. This is not God saying, I'm not going to let them be converted. It's God saying, now that they have rejected me, as they hear the message, it's going to harden them rather than soften them. The same concept is taught in Ezekiel 12 too. 
And Jesus invokes this teaching throughout his ministry. We see this verse quoted several times in order to highlight the blind defiance of the nation's leaders to the truths of God's word. Now, it is perhaps worth noting that in the Matthew 13 passage of this same parable, written specifically to the Jews, Jesus, uh, Ma- Matthew records a great deal more about this Isaiah prophecy. He, he gives a great deal more insight into what Jesus is saying here. He quotes more of Isaiah chapter 6. Why? Well, because that would matter to the Jews, right? They need to hear more of that because that's Jesus speaking of them. That's not Luke's purpose, which is why Luke only gives the bare minimum here. Because that's not his purpose in writing this. He moves past it quite quickly. But to Jesus' disciples, those who had already received the truths of God's word, it is for them to know and to understand these spiritual concepts. And so he explains the parable in verses 11 through 15. He says this, Now the parable is this, The seed is the word of God. Those by the wayside are they that hear. Then cometh the devil and taketh away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. They on the rock are they which, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And these have no root, which for a while believe, and in time of temptation fall away. And that which fell among the thorns are they which, when they have heard, go forth and are choked with cares and riches and pleasures of this life, and bring forth, and bring no fruit to perfection. But that on good ground are they which, in an honest and good heart, having heard the word of God, keep it and bring forth fruit with patience. So now we get to the reality, the second portion of the parable. And in this we find that Jesus actually correlates a great deal of the parable uh, to, to reality here. We see a great deal, almost allegorically. But we know it's not an allegory, which means we're not looking to learn something from each of these resemblances. We're looking for one primary truth, right? And he says the seed is the word of God. Take note that Jesus did not say the gospel of salvation. He said the word of God specifically. We'll talk more about this toward the end. The seeds that fall by the wayside are, are seeds that fall upon hearts that hear the word of God, but don't regard it and don't believe it at all. Jesus says the devil takes away the word of God. They are blinded by their own selfishness, by their own love for themselves or for, for the things of this world. They refuse to receive truth at all. Uh, they are deaf to the teachings of the truths of God's word. The seeds come and the word of God has no effect. The seeds that fall among the rocks are people who hear the word of God and receive it very joyfully. They are happy to hear the word of God. They love what it has to say. They like what they hear. They're ready and willing to believe that it is true. And they want this for their lives. They even want these truths in their lives. But when they are asked to stand up for these truths, to stand upon these truths, to make them a part of their lives, to, to, to change, to build their foundation upon these truths... They falter and they fall back to their old ways because they have no root. They have no foundation. The seeds that fall among the rocks, um, excuse me, among the thorns, are those that hear and receive the word of God. But then as they go back into the world, they're confronted with all the temptations of loving this world. And they decide that to love the world that they love the world more than they love the word of God. And so their obedience, their, their fruit is choked out by the cares of this world, by a love for this world. And then you have the seeds that fall on good ground. And that good ground are hearts that hear the word of God and obey it. And they obey it 
And in doing so, the Word of God brings forth in their lives the spiritual fruit of faith and of obedience. Now, in the Luke passage, it is only mentioned that they bring forth fruit and hundredfold, 100 times. In Matthew 13, 23, Jesus gives three different units of fruitfulness. He gives hundredfold, sixtyfold, and thirtyfold. Different measures of fruit. Some people bring forth more fruit than others, depending on how well they receive the word of God. Now, Jesus has given them the parable. The parable remembers both parts, the fictional part and the reality part. And now we have this unique situation where he has given insight to the disciples, which he has not given to the multitudes. But Jesus is certainly not desirous to hide this knowledge from anyone. He has not chosen out a special group of people to know where the rest are out of luck. And so he says in verses 16 and 17, No man, when he hath lighted a candle, covereth it with a vessel, or putteth it under a bed, but setteth it on a candlestick, that they which enter in may see the light, for nothing is secret that shall not be made manifest, neither anything hid that shall not be made known, uh, uh, be known and come abroad. Now, I, I want to take special note of something here. For those of you that understand and know the scriptures, this is not a parallel passage to Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. In that passage, he talks about a light being set on a candlestick, right? And he talks about uh, uh, a light be- or a light being hit under a bushel. He talks about them being a city on a hill. This is not a parallel to that. Take note of this. In that passage in Matthew 5, Jesus is teaching that his disciples are to be a light to the world, right? We will find that parable of them being a light to the world in Luke 11. This is not the parallel. I I, I know I keep repeating that. Take note of this. This is kind of neat. In this passage, Jesus is not teaching his disciples that they need to be a light to the world, is he? In this passage, Jesus is teaching that he has not hid the truths of God and of his word from anyone. He has not covered the light of the word. He has not put it under a bed. Everyone is invited to come to the light. Do you see the the distinction? When Jesus talks to his disciples, he says, you're a city on a hill. You are a light that's put on a candlestick to light the way, to shine the light to others. What Jesus is saying in this, in this passage is, I'm not hiding the light. I'm not snuffing it out. Anyone that wants to come to the light and understand these parables, they can come. Anyone that wants to know God's word, they can come. To the disciples who are seeking truth, all will be made manifest. God is not attempting, this is not Gnosticism, this is not secret knowledge, this is not Jesus saying, I'm going to tell a few of you the truth so that you can have a corner on truth. No, Jesus says anyone that wants the truth can have the truth. He says here, nothing is secret that shall not be made manifest. I am putting my light out there for anybody to come, but look, you have to enter in if you want to see the light. There's a a big difference between what Jesus is saying here in in purpose and what Jesus is saying in Matthew 5. Correlate Matthew 5 to Luke 11, not to Luke 8. And so it is with man. God is not in the business of purposefully hiding truth from you. 
In fact, to whatever degree you're willing to receive with gladness the truths of God, God will give you more truth. If you want it, you can have it. But you've got to want it. You've got to be willing to receive it. So we've considered the parable. The fictional picture, the reality to which it correlates. Now it's time for the lesson. This is the lesson. This is the part that matters the most. Found in verses 18 to 21. Take heed, therefore, how ye hear. For whosoever hath to him shall be given. And whosoever hath not from him shall be taken, even that which he seemeth to have. Then came to him his mother and his brethren, and could not come at him for the press. Too many people around. And it was told him by certain which said, Thy mother and thy brethren stand without, desiring to see thee. And he answered and said unto them, My mother and my brethren are these which hear the word of God and do it. Take particular note of the beginning and the end of, these, of this passage, of this little chunk in 18 to 21. He first says, take heed how ye hear. And then at the end he says, my mother and my brethren are these which hear the word of God and do it. Why did Luke put this little bit about his mother and brethren in there? Because it's the same theme. This is the purpose of the parable. This is what Jesus was teaching. This is all that sowing of the seed, all of that receiving, all of that good ground. The point is this. What is your, what's the soil of your heart? Take heed how you hear. Not just that you hear, but how you hear. See, because the, the, those that have, they're going to get more. And those that ha- have not, they're going to have taken away even that they have. Those that have, those whose hearts are prepared, to you whose heart is willing to hear, God's going to bless you. You will, you will be fruitful. But if you harden your heart to God, even that little bit that you might have, It's going to get taken away by Satan, by the world, by something. You you will digress because you've rejected the word of God. That's the point of the parable. Yes, we can learn about the nature of unbelief and what happens to a man when the word is preached. We can learn a little bit about the nature of unbelief from these different soil types. Yes, we can see that the word of God is a seed being planted. There's even a a great ministry out there, which many of us know and support, called Bearing Precious Seed, right? And it it's kind of has this idea to it. But none of that is the point of the parable. None of that is the focus. It only serves to prop up the essential lesson. What's the lesson? Every time you read a parable, find the lesson. Pinpoint the lesson. Get it. Know it. Learn it. Dig it deep into your heart. The point is this. It doesn't matter how much you know about the Bible, Christian. It doesn't matter how much you've learned. What matters is how you've heard. Whether or not your heart is positioned to obey what you know. To obey it. The blessing of God, the spiritual fruit born in the kingdom, the joys and the promises which God describes, these are not promised to those who know the Bible really well. Those are not promised to people who simply hear the words that pastor says every week. They are not reserved for the person who memorizes the most verses. They are not reserved for the person who can outline all of the books of the Bible. They are not reserved for the person even who says, yeah, the Bible's true. 
the blessings of God, the spiritual fruit born in the kingdom, the joys and the promises which God describes are reserved for those who hear the word of God and do it. And do it. And so you and I need to take heed how we hear. Not just that we hear. Because how we hear is the point. How we hear. That's the lesson. That's the point. And as we mentioned earlier, this parable is not explicitly about being saved. We can apply the concept true enough. There are those in this world who have no desire to receive the gospel. They reject the truth of Jesus Uh, that He is God, that He came in the flesh, that He died on the cross, that He rose again the third day. They refuse the notion that nothing they can, uh, that they can do nothing to be right with God, that only uh, those who receive Him with humility through the finished work of Jesus Christ on their behalf can be saved from a sinner's hell. When that hits their ears, they flatly reject it, they don't hear it, they move on. There are those in the world who, when they hear the gospel, love the idea of salvation. I get these in the jail. That's everyone in the jail. They love the idea that Jesus can save them. They love the idea that they don't have to be an addict anymore. They love the idea that Jesus can break the bonds. They love that. But they succumb to the ideas of of competing truth claims as well. Their roots are shallow. They like Jesus, but they don't want to put all their eggs into his basket. They are... Fans, but not followers. They are not fully convinced that he's the only way. And so when the, the, the pressures of life hit them, they fall away. Their roots were not actually sunk into the truths of the gospel. And so when they are tested, they wither. There are those in this world who love what the gospel has to say, but aren't willing to leave all to follow Christ. Their sin, their lifestyle, their reputation, these things are too important to them to give up for the sake of the gospel. This Gift of Jesus sounds good, but not as good as their way, not as good as their sin. And so the weeds of this world, the cares of this world, the love for this world chokes out the gospel. The allures of this world outweigh the promises of Christ in their mind and his rewards. And so they reject it. And then there are those who truly receive the gospel and they bear the fruit of belief in their lives. Now, if, now we can apply that truth. We can do that. And that's, that's a pretty valid application to this parable. But Jesus is not just teaching about receiving Jesus as Savior here. You say, well, well, pastor, what about in this parable here in Romans, or in Luke chapter eight, that, that first soil, that trampled ground, he says, uh, in that, in that, uh, trampled ground, the sower went out to sow a seed, and it, some fell on the wayside and it was trodden down and the fowls of the, of the air devoured it. And some fell on rocks. Excuse me, I need to get to the, uh, the interpretation. Those, uh, verse 12, those by the wayside are they that hear. Then, that went, then cometh the devil and taketh away out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. Say, that seems to be a pre-salvation emphasis. That's true. And so we can apply it there. But remember that the word salvation in the scriptures is not always talking about salvation from hell. It can be saved. A believer can be saved from a life of sin as well. That word salvation is very broad. So it's a very valid application to talk about salvation. But remember, remember that Jesus is also talking. He's talking to his disciples, people who have already believed. People who have already heard. People have already accepted him. 
And that brings us to our application this evening. If you have not accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, some of our young people have not. This is for you. If you've not accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you need to. Don't be like that rocky soil, that thorny soil, that soil by the wayside that won't hear. Prepare your heart to receive the Lord and receive Him with gladness. Accept Jesus as your Savior. But we're speaking mostly to believers this evening. And as I speak to believers, remember Jesus was speaking to His disciples here. And so to you who are disciples of Jesus Christ, let's apply. And let me ask you first this question. How do you hear? How do you hear? Not are you hearing. Not have you memorized the Bible. Not do you read your Bible. Not do you claim the Bible is true. Not that you hear. My question is, How do you hear? As a believer, as one who has already accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ, one who already has the Holy Spirit of God inside of you, how do you hear the word of God? Just as Jesus told his disciples the meaning of this parable, then warned them to be careful how they hear, so too the Holy Spirit has made known to us the meaning of these spiritual truths and warns you to be careful how you hear. What is the soil of your heart like this evening? Let's walk through the four scenarios. Scenario one, is the soil of your heart wayside? You are a believer. You've been saved from the wrath that comes. You are saved yet so as by fire. You have accepted Jesus as your Savior. You've got the baseline. But is there some element of the Bible that you simply aren't willing to believe? I don't know what part of the Bible you've chosen to ignore. For many churches, it's that pesky part about women not being teachers, right? The church just overlooks that. That's a wayside heart in that church. In one ear, out the other. They've been deceived. Or maybe something having to do with divorce and remarriage. Lots of issues in the church where the church has become wayside hearts. But what about your own heart? For many believers, it's that pesky teaching about loving your enemies. It's just wayside. It comes and it goes and you just ignore it. Or forgiving those who wrong you. It's wayside. You hear about it, but you you just ignore it. Or taming your tongue from gossip slander you hear you hear it but you just ignore it or living in temperance self control in whatever area of life financially physically whatever it might be and you hear it and it just doesn't even it bounces off wayside heart But is there some part of you that is explicitly ignoring the truths of the Bible? That literally believes that these teachings are not true or are not necessary to you? They don't apply to you? That's rejection. You have a part of your heart that's that's the wayside. Second scenario. You falter at temptation. Maybe you've heard the teachings of God's word on a particular issue and you know that that's exactly what you needed. 
You hear an evangelist come and you say, Lord, this is exactly what I need. Or you hear a message and you say, that's me. I need that. I want that. I love that. I'm going to claim that. I'm going to take that with you. You receive it with joy and you gladly attempt to implement it into your life. You know what the Bible says about loving the world. So you gladly decide to do a spring cleaning of your life and remove those influences which you know are wrong. But the decision has no root. It has no lasting power. When the tough decision has to be made, when it's difficult, when the tough times come, you falter. Maybe it's discouragement that causes you to falter. Maybe it's persecution. Maybe it's weariness, but you falter. So you choose to clean things out or to get things right or to do something But then the time comes when you have to make the hard decisions and you say, well, maybe I overreacted on this one. Maybe I really shouldn't have committed to that. Maybe that's not really what God wants of me. And you begin to rationalize it. It's not really a big deal. That's rocky heart. You know what God wants you to do. But when the time comes to do it, you wither because your heart has some rocks in it. How are you hearing? Well, you're hearing with a rocky heart. It's not that you don't hear it. It's not that you don't know it. But it's that your heart is not truly prepared to do what is necessary. You have a rocky heart. Scenario one, rejection. Scenario two, falter. Scenario three, the cares of this world. Maybe you as a believer have heard the word of God on an issue and you know what God wants you to do. But you know when it actually comes time to count the cost... You're sitting there and you say, I know, I know God wants that of me, but do you know what? I want something else more. I just want something else more. You simply aren't willing to give up what you want or what you have for what God wants of you. Yes, you know that that thing is wrong, but you just aren't willing to give it up for Christ. Yes, you know that you're supposed to obey them that have rule over you, but you simply aren't willing to submit to that rule. So while the word of God touches you, and you know it, when you count the cost, the cost is too great. You have a thorny heart. The cares of this world have choked out your love for God. There's something more important to you than Him. You have a thorny heart. But praise the Lord, there's a fourth scenario. It's a doer of the word. This is the person who hears the word of God, who is ready to believe it. If God says it, I'm going to believe it. It is true. And I'm going to commit myself to it regardless of what this might mean. Regardless of the cost. Regardless of how hard. Regardless of what that means for my finances. Regardless of what that means for my efforts. Regardless of what that means for persecution. Regardless of what that means for discouragement. I'm going to do it because God says I should. And I believe that it's what's best for me. And so they look at their life. They assess it in light of what the Bible says. And without hesitation, they do what the Bible tells them to do. They come and they sit in the seats every Sunday. And they say, God, I don't know what you have for me today. And it might very well hurt, but I'm ready to obey. And you go home and every morning you open your Bible. And you say, God, I don't know what growing I have to do. But I'm ready to grow. And you show me. And I'm ready to make the steps. Whatever it is. I'm ready to do it. And then they bear much fruit. It's simple. It's so simple. But it's not easy, is it? 
Jesus said, take heed how you hear. Be careful, not that you are hearing, but how you are hearing. There are some people that can come here Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Tuesday night that can be at every event, that can listen to sermons all day, every day. They're listening to podcasts. They're filling their mind. But what they haven't done is position their heart to hear and obey. They listen and then they judge others and they listen and then they say, I know what to do. They listen so that they can figure out what everyone else is doing wrong. They listen for whatever reason they listen, but their heart is not good soil. There's thorns, there's rocks, there's wayside. It's not actually touching them. When you wake up and read your Bible in the morning, when you come on a Sunday and a Tuesday to hear the teaching of the Word of God, is your heart positioned to not just hear, but receive the Bible, regardless of what that means for you? Do you step into the Bible with the mindset that if God tells me to start something or to stop something, I'm ready to believe and to obey 100%. And Jesus says, this is where this comes in. Jesus is pressed. There's a great deal of people around him. His disciples say, your mother and your brethren are here. And Jesus says, these that my mother and my brethren are these who hear me, and not just here, but having heard the word of God, do it. The ones that are closest to me, the ones that are truly my family, are the doers of the word. We could spend more time on this, couldn't we? We could go to James one twenty two, and we could spend a bunch of time there where James tells us, but be ye doers of the word. And not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. Look, you are fooling yourself. If you are sitting here Sunday morning, Sunday night, Tuesday night, if you're listening to sermons online, if you're you're going through all of that, but you're only a hearer and not a doer, you are self-deceived, James says. You're just fooling yourself into thinking you're pleasing God. You're just fooling yourself into thinking you'll have the blessings of God. Because the man who is blessed in his deed, verse 25 of James 1 tells us, is not the hearer of the word, but the doer of the word. We could go to John, 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, where he writes, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. Here it is. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Not he that heareth the word of God. He that doeth the word of God abideth forever. John was writing to believers here and he says to whatever degree we are willing to reject the corruption of the world. Not not everything, right? That's our Ecclesiastes. That's our Ecclesiastes study. God wants us to enjoy the good and virtuous things of this life. But the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, those things that are truly evil in the world, wrong in the world, the concepts of the world, the ideology of the world, to whatever degree you are willing to reject that You're expressing your love toward God and in loving God, you're fulfilling the word of God and in fulfilling the word of God and doing the will of God, you are blessed. 
And the greatest irony of this message in each of our lives is that we are going through the process of hearing as we're learning about hearing, right? In other words, each person under the sound of my voice right now is experiencing one of these four scenarios in your heart. You, it's, it's either bounced right off of you and the birds are right now eating those seeds away. The devil has stolen away this truth from you. Or you are, you're saying, yes, pastor, this is what I want. And then you go home and you're going to say, uh, maybe that's not what God really wants of me. Uh, maybe, that, I don't know. Or you're saying, yes, pastor, I believe this. And then you're going to go home and, and your love for the world is just going to override it. Or, or, or you're sitting there and your heart is good soil. And you say, yep, it's time to start doing. It's time to start doing what I know the Bible has told me to do. It's time to sell out. It's time to give in. It's time to yield and to receive the blessing that comes from truly yielding. That's happening in each one of our hearts right now. Your heart is one of these four. Which is it? The seeds have gone forth today. What kind of soil is your heart? Let's pray. Father, it's my greatest desire that each one of us, myself included, could say with all boldness and confidence this evening that our hearts are good soil, ready to bear fruit, ready to bring forth the fruit, some hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold, but ready to bear fruit for the kingdom of God. I pray for the men. I pray for the women. I pray for the children that are here today. I ask that each one of them, whether, they're, whether it's the, the unbeliever who has not accepted Jesus Christ and has heard this message, or whether it's the believer who is struggling with whether or not they are ready to submit to you, I pray that each person in this room would have the good soil in their hearts that is ready to receive and so to bear fruit. Help us as parents Help us as children. Help us as siblings. Help us as citizens. Help us as employees. Help us as employers. Help us as church members. Help me as the pastor. Help us to be doers of that which you have called us to do. May we love you. May we serve you. May we be doers of the word and not hearers only. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.